The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We just sang that phrase, the blood of Jesus, 15 times in that hymn. And I ask, why do we sing about the blood of Jesus? Why do we sing about blood? Is that something praiseworthy to sing of? Why is the blood of Jesus so precious to us? Why is it so important to us? It's because the blood of Jesus represents the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, which paid for our redemption and made possible our restoration in Christ. And that's what Paul talks about here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. And if you did not sing with joy, or if you could not sing with joy just a moment ago, we will give you another chance in a few moments after we spend some time unpacking what it means to have redemption and restoration in Christ. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 7 through 10 this evening as we continue our series on the book of Ephesians. May we remember that this is the Word of God. It is the truth, and it is a precious gift, and may we receive it as such. Ephesians 1, in Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us and all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We know that it is the spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. So, oh God, may your spirit work in every heart and life here this evening to turn our hearts towards you and grant us repentance and faith. Show us the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we try to unpack this passage, I want to just ask some questions as we go through it to help us do that. And the first question I want to ask is, what is redemption? We have redemption in Christ, but what is redemption? And the word here means to purchase and set free by paying a price. To purchase and set free by paying a price. And this word was often used in the context of releasing a slave from captivity, So when Paul wrote this sentence under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he lived at a time when there were about six million slaves in the Roman Empire. And the buying and selling of slaves was a major business. So if a person wanted to to free a slave, maybe there was a slave that was a friend of theirs or a loved one. 
If they wanted to free that slave from captivity, they could purchase that slave for themselves and then grant them freedom. And that gives us a picture of what redemption is. It's paying a ransom in order to release a person from slavery and set them free. And that's what we have in Christ. In Christ, we have been bought and set free. But this, this leads me, at least, to another question. You might be sitting here tonight, and you might be asking, well, why do I need redemption? You know, after all, we're not, we're not slaves, at least not in the way that we normally think about slavery. You might not think that you are in captivity at all. But if you read through the pages of Scripture, you will find that our common condition is often described as slavery to sin. We are in bondage to sin. We are held captive by our sin. And so believe it or not, like it or not, every person ever born has been born as a slave of sin, except for one, Jesus Christ. But Jesus himself says in John chapter 8 that whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. If you look at Romans, Romans tells us that all have sinned, and so all are slaves to sin. Well, let's just take a moment and and think about what is sin. If we're slaves to sin, what does it mean that we are slaves to sin? What is sin? And as we think about that question with VBS coming up, I'm reminded of the, the definition we often share with the children at VBS. Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that does not please God. Anything we think, say, or do that does, that does not please God. A simple definition, the Bible calls this lawlessness or rebelling against God. We have rejected God and his ways. We've rejected his right to rule in our lives. We have ignored God. The Bible says that we have not honored him as God nor given thanks to him. And we are all guilty. We are infinitely guilty before an infinitely holy God. Apart from Christ, before Christ, the Bible says that we were sold into slavery to sin. That our hearts, our souls, our minds, our bodies were captive to sin. This is what we call total depravity. You might say, yes, we were free. We were free to do whatever we wanted to do. The problem was all that we wanted to do was sin. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. But unlike most slaves, we had no desire to be free. You see, we loved our captivity. We reveled in it. We loved the world and we hated God. And this is a serious problem for all mankind. Because the Bible says that the consequence of our sin, the consequence of our slavery is the wrath of Almighty God. Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness are storing up wrath. God has revealed that to us. In Romans chapter 2, we're told that it's because of the stubbornness of our hearts, our unrepentant hearts, we are storing up wrath for ourselves in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 6 describes the common condition of all mankind as slaves of sin leading to death. So we must understand that we were on the broad road leading to hell and we were happy to be there. And maybe you are still on that road tonight. 
The truth of the matter is we needed redemption. But we did not deserve it. We could not earn it. And we did not even want it. We were like the addict who's destroying his life because of his love for a drug or his love for alcohol. And he has no power to change, no desire to change. Though it's destroying his life and hurting all of those around him, he needs intervention. This is what we need. This is our condition. And this is what makes redemption This opening phrase here in verse 7, so unexpected, so surprising, so amazing, so wonderful. We did not deserve redemption. We could not earn it ourselves. We did not even want it. And yet that's what we needed at the core of our being. It's what was good for us, what was best for us. And we have it in Christ. See, the good news this evening is that in Christ we have redemption. This is not some far off hope. Not some possibility. We possess it now. It is a present reality. Paul says, in him we have redemption. This means that we have been bought out of the slave market of sin and death. And we have been set free. Something we never would have chosen for ourselves. But has been graciously given to us. We have been set free. Well, set free from what? We've been set free from the law as a way of earning our righteousness or our standing before God. We have been set free from the power of Satan and the world. We have been set free from slavery to sin. We are free from the guilt of sin. We are free from the condemnation of sin. We are free from the bondage of sin. We are free from the power of sin. We are free from the penalty of sin. And this is true now, today, for all who are in Christ. And we can never return to that slavery, to that bondage to sin. And one day, one glorious day, we will be free even from the very presence of sin. The story is told of Abraham Lincoln. I'm not sure that it's a true story, but it's a nice story. The story is told of Abraham Lincoln uh, one day going down to the the slave block and and seeing a young black girl being put up on the slave block. And as he saw her there being bid on, he had compassion for her. And he was moved to bid on her as well, but not so that he could purchase her for himself and make make her his own personal slave, but so that he could set her free. And so he won the bid and he purchased her and he said to this young girl, you are now free. And she said, confused, well, what does that mean? And he replied, it means you are free. Well, does that mean I can say whatever I want to say? Yes, my dear. You can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean I can be Whatever I want to be, yes. You can be whatever you want to be. Does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? Yes. You may go wherever you want to go. And it's said that this young girl with tears streaming down her face said, then I will go with you. Isn't that what we are compelled to do? To go with our Redeemer Charles Wesley wrote in the great hymn, My chains fell off, 
my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. In Christ, we have redemption. We have been set free. And this unexpected grace compels us to follow him. But if that is not enough to compel you, then let's ask another question. Think about the the price it cost for you to be redeemed. Let's ask the question, what was the cost? How much did it cost for our freedom? How have we been redeemed? Verse 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood. The Bible says that we were bought with a price. And what was that price? You know, the price of our redemption was nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, we're told that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And I think if we lived in the Old Testament times, we would have a better understanding of this because in the Old Testament, God had set up a sacrificial system for his people so that atonement for sins could be made through the sacrifice of an animal, through the death of an animal, through the blood of an animal. But we know this was only a sign. This was was simply pointing ahead to the perfect sacrifice that would be made by the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So we read also in Hebrews 9 that Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You know, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of this. The words of Jesus when he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We see this in 1 Peter, where Peter writes, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Your redemption cost the precious blood of Christ. Now some might say, well, well, what about salvation being free? I thought salvation was free. And yes, salvation indeed is. It's a free gift in that you cannot buy it. You cannot earn it with good deeds. But simply because it is a free gift does not mean that it did not cost anything. You know, the gift you give your grandchild for Christmas, they did not pay for it. They didn't earn it by being nice, but you paid for it. Salvation is free to you only because Jesus paid for it with his precious blood. You know, last week, Tucker encouraged us to praise God for his grace, for our ABCs in Christ, that we've been adopted, we've been blessed, we've been chosen in Christ. And here we see there was a great cost in making that praise possible. We are adopted because Jesus Christ, the holy, eternal Son of God, was forsaken and cut off in our place. We are blessed because Jesus Christ, the one with the authority to bless, became a curse for us. And we are chosen because Jesus Christ, the beloved, was rejected in our place. As I thought about this concept this week, I was struggling with how can I communicate the weight of this cost that Christ has paid on our behalf. And I pray that you will feel the weight 
of what Christ has done for you, what he has borne for you. For as you feel that weight, it will make clear to you the depth of his love. And you will be compelled to respond with gratitude. And your affections, your heart will be turned toward him. And you will respond with repentance and love and praise and worship and obedience. But how can I communicate this? How can I make you feel the weight of what Christ has done for you, what he has borne for you? And obviously there's a sense in which I cannot. But I pray that the Holy Spirit will. But I do believe I was helped yesterday as I sat here in this sanctuary at Peggy Weston's funeral. And Reverend Stephen Tracy preached from Hebrews chapter 2. And Dr. Rogers read some of Peggy's own words. And the point was made that while we do suffer, and Peggy was well acquainted with suffering, while we do suffer, Peggy admitted, we do not understand suffering as Jesus does. For he has suffered more than we will ever know. And Hebrews tells us that we do not taste death as Jesus does. We do not taste death as Jesus does. Think about that. No, in 1 Corinthians, Paul asks that great question, O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy sting? There is no sting in death for those who trust in Christ. But why? Is it because death has no sting or never had a sting? Is it because death is not as bad as people make it out to be? No, there is, or there was, a sting in death. And it is much worse than people realize. But where is it now? Beloved, Jesus took it for you. He took it for you. Think of that. When Jesus died on the cross, he was suffering the full wrath of an infinitely holy God in your place as a punishment for sin. He took the sting of death, so now you don't have to. Recently, I was watching a video of a, of a pastor who had gone to a, a secular university and he had spoken about biblical sexuality, and, and the room was filled with people who did not agree with him. And they had a QA session afterwards. And, and, and the rows were lined with people, and person after person after person was just attacking him and attacking the Bible and, and, and the position and the truth of God's word. And this one young man got up, and he was mocking the death of Jesus Christ. He said, three days? Is that, what's, what's the big deal about three days? No concept whatsoever about, about what Jesus Christ has suffered. May you feel the weight of it. Listen, you will never die like Jesus died. Jesus died as a punishment for sin. That was the sting of death. If you are trusting in Christ, you will never die as punishment for sin. It may be a consequence of living in a broken world, but it will not be punishment for sin. No, the Bible tells us that now the death of God's people is precious in his sight. God has planned it for your good and his joy. Your death is now God, your father, calling you home to be with him. That's what happened recently to Peggy Weston. God, her father, said, 
come home where you belong. And see, this is made possible because Jesus Christ paid it all. Our redemption cost Christ everything. Salvation is free to you and me because Jesus Christ paid the price for us. You have been redeemed through his blood. No wonder the elders sing praise to Christ in heaven before the throne in Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we can say thank you Jesus. But there is more. There is more good news in this passage because not only are we free but we are forgiven. We can ask another question. What was the result of our redemption? And the passage says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. See, the word forgiveness basically means to send away. And again, we have an image from the Old Testament to help us understand this. In the Old Testament, one of Israel's greatest holy days was the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would place his hands on the head of a goat, symbolically laying Israel's sins on that goat. And then the goat would be taken away, taken way out into the wilderness, so far that it would be lost and it could never find its way back. And the gracious message was this, that the sins of the people went with the animal, never to return again. And that is what Christ has now done for his people on the cross, where our sins were truly laid on him, and he did bear them away. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. The psalmist says, bless the Lord, oh, my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Though your sins are like scarlet, They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. The prophet cries out, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast them into the depths of the sea. God will forgive our iniquity. Remember our sins no more. We read in Psalm 130, God does not keep a record of sins for those who are in Christ. He does not count our trespasses against us. He has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he has set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Paul says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Beloved, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven. But you know, many Christians, myself 
included. We struggle with embracing this full forgiveness of our sins. We can become depressed about our sin, depressed about our failure to live our lives as God desires us to live. We can think, we can act as if God still holds our sins against us, as if maybe he thinks less of us because of our sin, or maybe doesn't quite fully accept us or fully love us, or maybe even he might still be angry with us. Beloved, you may be thinking about your sin tonight, but God is not. You may be discouraged by your sin, but God is not. You may be frustrated by your sin, but God is not. You may be weighed down by your sin, but God is not. Beloved, God has already taken your sin upon himself the sins that you have already committed and all the sins that you yet will commit and there will be many of them and he knows them all and they have all been carried away by the Lamb of God. They've been removed as far as the east is from the west and they can never return. Listen, your sins are no longer an issue with God. They are no longer a problem. They are no longer a barrier. He has taken care of them. He has removed the barrier. He has paid the price. Once and for all, it is finished, complete, done. Hebrews 9 also tells us that just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. But why? Not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is good news. Your sins have been dealt with. Now enjoy the salvation that Jesus gives and that he brings. Well, does this mean that we'll never sin? Or that our sins don't have a harmful harmful effect? No. No, but how should we think about our sin? How should we respond to our sin? We follow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to the cross because that's where the Holy Spirit always leads, to Christ. Beloved, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ today and you are feeling guilty, you are feeling condemned, you are feeling depressed, you are feeling in despair over your sins, doubting your salvation, doubting God's love, doubting his acceptance, know this, that is not the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the work of unbelief and the work of the devil, the father of lies. Do not listen to him. Do not dwell on the unbelief of your own heart. Listen to the Holy Spirit preach the gospel to you and lead you to the cross, to daily repentance and faith. You can freely admit and confess your sin and receive the forgiveness that God freely gives and then rejoice and press on towards holiness, amazed and strengthened by God's daily unending grace to you in Christ. When we doubt God's forgiveness, we deny the work of Christ. We deny the redemption that has been bought for us with the precious blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, children of God, in Christ today you have redemption. 
the forgiveness of your sins. You are forgiven. Well, another question we could ask is, what is the extent of our redemption? Because the next phrase in this passage, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. God's grace is far greater. It is infinitely greater than our sin. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We have been forgiven according to the riches of God's grace. Not out of, but according to. Maybe this simple illustration will help you understand that. Um, what if, let's say you went to a friend who made $30 million a year. And would that have, we all had a friend like that. Well, let's say you go to a friend who makes $30 million a year. And you ask them if they might contribute some money to a worthy ministry. And they write you a check. They take their check out right away. Sure, I'll be glad to do that. And they write you a check for $25. You could say they have given out of their riches, but not according to their riches. Your other friend who might only make $30,000 a year might give that much or even more. But if that friend who made $30 million a year took out his checkbook and wrote a check to you on the spot for a million dollars or two million or three million dollars, that would be giving according to his riches. Beloved, God forgives us, redeems us according to his riches. And more, the Bible says that this grace has been lavished upon us. I love that word, lavished. I think we ought to use that word more. You know, when I go out for ice cream, I don't want them just to put a little scoop on top of that cone. I want them to lavish it on. I want them to overflow. Give me as much as you can until the weight of the ice cream almost makes it tip over. And even then I might not mind as long as I can catch it and eat it. Lavish it on there. Now this might seem silly, but I'll tell you, God would be the best ice cream scooper in the world. He has lavished his grace upon us. He forgives us in abundance, overflowing. The psalmist says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. God has dealt bountifully with us. Our redemption in Christ, our forgiveness, is not even the greatest thing. This has been great news, but it's not even the greatest thing. Because this is going somewhere here. Verses 9 and 10 tell us that there is even even a greater thing coming, and that is our restoration in Christ. See, Paul says in verse 9 that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. And when Paul says this word mystery, it's not something that we have to try to figure out. Like you're playing the game of Clue and you want to see who did it. No, when the Bible uses the word mystery, it's referring to something that was formerly unknown but now has been revealed. And what Paul reveals here is that God's ultimate purpose in redemption is to restore all things again in Jesus Christ. So understand this, our redemption in Christ. The forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us. This is great news, but it is not the end. It is not the goal. This is a means to the end. This is taking us somewhere, leading us somewhere. All this has happened as part of God's plan to restore us in Christ. Pastor John Piper says it this way. 
Jesus himself is our great reward. Nothing less. Salvation is not merely the forgiveness of sins, but mainly the fellowship of Jesus. Forgiveness gets everything out of the way so that can happen. We have been redeemed. Our sins have been forgiven so that we can enjoy the fellowship of Jesus. So that our relationship with God can be restored. Now there is an already and not yet aspect to this restoration in Christ. Now we already have redemption in Christ. We already enjoy fellowship with Jesus and yet we still struggle with sin on a daily basis. We already believe the good news of Jesus Christ and yet we struggle with doubts. We can already see the beauty and wonder of our glorious Savior and yet we only see dimly. But the day is coming when there will be no more sin There will be no more doubt. There will be no more distractions. There will be no more idols. There will be no more barriers. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more conflict. There will be no more brokenness. There will be no more stories of shootings in theaters or fires destroying neighborhoods or earthquakes or tornadoes claiming hundreds of lives and whole towns. For it is not just God's people who will be restored in Christ, but it is God's creation. God's purpose is to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. I would just briefly must say this does not mean all people. Paul's not teaching universalism here. He's not teaching that every person will be saved. The Bible clearly teaches against this in other places. Jesus himself in Matthew 25 and John 3 where Jesus says, whoever obeys the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. No, this is not all people. The all things refers to both God's people and God's universe. And this is the cosmic restoration that the creation itself is groaning for that we read about in Romans chapter 8. This is Eden restored where the paradise that was lost in Adam because of sin, because of the fall, will finally be restored in Christ. Sin has been tearing everything apart since then. But God, in Christ, will gather everything together again. There will be harmony. There will be peace. There will be restoration between man and God. No more sin. No more barrier. There will be harmony and peace between man and man. No more bitterness, no more conflict, no more avoiding people. There will be restoration between man and creation. No more thorns, no more thistles, no more toil under the sun. All will be restored. And when this happens, it will never be undone again. All will be restored in Christ, reunited in Christ to all eternity. John Stott, who is now enjoying this restoration. Asked this question when he wrote about this passage. Can we think like Paul? Can we have the mind of Paul? Because if you remember when Paul wrote this passage, he was a prisoner in Rome. He was under house arrest, confined to a home, handcuffed to a Roman soldier. And as he was confined to that small space, amazingly, his heart and his mind 
were on eternity. You see that here in Ephesians chapter 1. He wrote of God's grace reaching out to us before the foundation of the world. And he also wrote of God's grace extending to us in the future fullness of time. Paul exalted in what we now have in Christ. And he explained what we ought to be in light of these two eternities. So the last question is, do we keep eternity in mind? You know, we often get caught up in our own petty little affairs. We think the universe revolves around us. Spend any amount of time on Facebook and it's obvious that that is true. But the world does not revolve around us, does it? No. Jesus Christ, the glorious one, he is the blazing center of the universe. All history revolves around him and is moving towards him. And so we need to see time. And we need to see our lives in light of eternity, in light of God's plan, to understand our present privileges and our obligations in light of our past election, our present redemption, and our future restoration for then. When we understand that, when we think about that, when we share Paul's perspective, we will also share his praise. See, doctrine is important. It's vitally important. But doctrine truly believed does not stay in your head. No, doctrine rightly believed leads to doxology. The result is praise. And it also leads to duty, joyful obedience, holiness. It changes the way you live. Life becomes worship. So God's people respond to Ephesians 1 by praising God for his unexpected grace lavished on us so richly in Christ and by trusting and resting in his promise to do so fully in the time to come. Beloved, you have been redeemed in Christ. And when the fullness of time comes, you will be restored in Christ. That is something worth singing about with joy. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Oh, great God, gracious God, God of all grace and mercy, we do say amen and come quickly, Lord Jesus, and take us home where we belong. There is no place we would rather be. We want to be with you. Amen.